Well, hello there, everyone, and welcome to episode 140 of The Cool Room. Uh, I'm your host, David Griffiths. We've got a very special episode coming up today as we have a chat with Collective Arts from Canada. Uh, it's a great chat, and they have some truly amazing beers to talk about. Uh, and if you want to have those truly amazing beers with you when you listen to the podcast, make sure you head on over to our Shopify store. You can find that by Googling Cool Room Podcast Shopify. Uh, and you'll find packs containing the beers that we're going to contain uh, just 99 Australian dollars for 12 Collective Arts beers. Uh, that's a pretty amazing deal. We're also going to put up some of the individual cans so that you can select the ones that you particularly want. Uh, we're overstocked in terms of Collective Arts, uh, something that I never thought I would be having the opportunity to say. Uh, but give us a hand by helping out the podcast and making a purchase. But mainly, give yourself a hand by getting some really fun and quite rare beers at some amazing prices. Uh, Okie dokie, without any further ado, check out our Facebook page and our Instagram if you want to know what events we've got coming up. But let's not delay things any further. Let's get underway with our chat with Collective Arts. Well, welcome everyone to The Cool Room. It's episode 140 or thereabouts, I've lost count, uh, which is a sign that we must have had an excellent live event yesterday at Beer Deluxe in Federation Square uh, with Sierra Nevada. But now we're rounding out our effectively July trilogy of Canadian events. Uh, we had Town Brewery on recently. We had our very good friend Steve Germain from Melbourne's Tallboy and Moose, who is a affectionately known as Canadian Steve. Uh, and today, very excitingly, we're joined by Ryan Morrow from Collective Arts. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Uh, it's great to be here. We're super excited about the lineup of beers that we're going to be trying today. Uh, about to get underway on the lager. But why don't you just paint us a little bit of a picture of, of the brewery, whereabouts you are, what it would be like if we were if we were wandering in the front door today? Just to give people a little bit of a, a bit of a feel for how we uh, how it would feel to be there. Yeah, sure. No, um, great to uh, great to be here. But uh, so, Collective Arts, we were founded back in 2013. Uh, Matt Johnson and Bob uh, Russell are the two founders, and then I came on board pretty much uh, back before day one as kind of the brewing uh, the brewing side of the company. Um, we are located, uh, the main brewery is located in Hamilton, Ontario. So it's about an hour west of Toronto. Um, and then during the pandemic, we thought it was a great idea to, oh, to take over an existing little brew pub in Toronto. So now we have a little small brewery in Toronto as well. Um, so uh, to back up a little bit on the way, we've branched off from just doing beer. We've, we've done cider for numerous years. Uh, in the last few years, we started doing uh, spirits and uh, cocktails as well. So we're kind of branching into all different sorts of areas in the craft beverage world. Uh, and in Canada, where it's legal, we're now doing uh, cannabis beverages as well. So we kind of we dip our toes into a little bit of everything right now. So. That's a pretty amazing lineup of things. Um, plenty of things for yeah. us to talk about as the uh, as the afternoon wears on there as well. Um, yeah. So. What were you doing before you joined Collective Arts? Was this something you always uh, envisaged working in a brewery or was it one of those things that sort of popped up a little bit out of nowhere? 
Now, I, I've been professionally brewing for, oh God, it's over 15 years now. So um, Bob and Matt found me when I was at my previous brewery, just kind of a town over from Hamilton. Uh, and that's kind of where Collective Arts started contract brewing out of that brewery. And then eventually we grew into this larger brewery. The company's kind of shifted around. So I ended up just staying with a collective arts and it's kind of been that way. But um, so personally, I've been brewing for almost pushing two decades now. So it's, I've, I've seen a lot. Uh, I've, been, I've worked at larger, uh, larger macro scale breweries. That's kind of was my first brewing job. So I've seen the whole scale, the whole gamut of sizes and shapes and feels and smells and tastes so uh, <laughs> i feel, feel fairly experienced in my uh in my years you uh you very kindly said before that you thought that i didn't look a day over 21 you certainly don't look like you've uh you've been brewing for two decades so you must have been yeah. a pretty young bloke when that started out for you yeah i definitely got into the industry pretty young um i was done university so i wasn't that young uh i've been home brewing much younger in my legally homebrewing, I guess you would call it, <laughs> back, back in my teens. So I, I definitely started young. Um, so definitely been a lifelong passion, if, if you were. Um, but thank you for the, uh, <laughs> for the kind sentiments. And um, you're, to, you're talking to a man who used to own a poutine restaurant. And whenever we have Canadians on, we, we feel duty bound to ask, you know, where is the best poutine in, in town? So. Uh, I'm not a massive poutine fan myself. I'm not a, I'm not a massive gravy person. So I, uh, I'm the wrong person to ask. But I used to just tell go to Quebec. That's the home of poutine. <laughs> so if it's a French person making it, it's probably good poutine. That uh, that is a very excellent answer. Um, we know that poutine goes nicely with all sorts of beers. Um, I can assure you, it goes very nicely with lager. Let's just hear a little bit about the uh, the first beer that we've got in our hands, um, the audiovisual lager. Can you take us perhaps on a little taste tour of that one? What should we be experiencing in the glass? Yeah, so the audiovisual lager, it's actually um, a base, it's a rice lager. Uh, we don't really market it that way on the cans, but if you're looking for like the base tasting background, it is a rice lager kind of in a Japanese style, if you were. So it's about one quarter rice. So that gives it the nice light crisp body because uh, you're just replacing obviously the, the full barley with a kind of that flavor profile from the rice. Uh, we use a nice really nice bright brown rice syrup uh, that gets the flavor profile we're looking for. So it's just meant to be really easy drinking crisp. Um, not It's not overly it's not a traditional style by any means. We use uh, New Zealand Waidi hops in it um, and some Motueka uh, as well. So we're using not a traditional lager hot profile, so it has a little bit of that um, lime character you get from Motueka. Uh, so it's, it, it's doing a bunch of different things, but it is, at the end of the day, just meant to be a really easy drinking lager. So. And, and is this a core range beer for you? I guess one of the, we've got this amazing yeah. tasting pack of beers, so we're interested to sort of see what's in the core range uh, that you've got there. Yeah, this, this is our core lager. Um, Funny enough, and I actually had a, a this is our this is our main core logger, but funny enough, just I, you said you did a interview with town. We just released a collaboration German Pilsner with with Town Brewery for a beer festival, uh, a, a music festival this weekend. 
Um, so <laughs> it's going to be sitting beside me. Um, <laughs> that, that, that beer is quite nice. That is an Accor range beer, but this one is. So, um, uh, but yeah, <laughs> sorry, I kind of took it off path there. Yeah, no, that's all good. And uh, have you always had a lager in the core range? No, we didn't. Um, we, for the longest time, didn't really have enough fermentation capacity to do a core lager. <laughs> um, just because it obviously takes more time to make lagers. So we we were just we were just so busy we could only really focus on ale. Um, now that we've grown, that we've added capacity. So this this was our first foray into core. We've done seasonal lagers, one-off lagers, but this one became our first core lager. Um, and then with our brew pub, we've been focusing a lot more on a lot more one-off lagers as well. So it's kind of fun to have that capability to do more we just we've never had enough tank space really to, to do it as much as we would like so uh we're certainly seeing in australia you know uh, a renaissance of lagers um is that sort of what's happening in canada as well yeah definitely um canada north america for sure there's a there's a few good breweries really focusing on doing really good lagers i mean we're we've definitely done a lot more obviously in the past couple of years too like i mentioned so Definitely, there's a, a good longer renaissance and a lot of really good, just two style, two classic style, which was missing, obviously, with the macro loggers that had just developed their own <laughs> kind of North American macro logger kind of thing. So it definitely is nice to have a lot more good logger options brewed in the traditional styles. So for sure, it's been a the last two or three years has exploded. We, we're definitely seeing that kind of thing as well, and we're particularly seeing that that brewers themselves like making lagers and like sharing lagers. Um, and wow. funny you say you had town on there, but you know, we sort of similar discussions with them a, a week or so ago. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, brewers love drinking lagers, brewers love drinking beers that you could drink a lot of, right? So, lagers. <laughs> like, there's, there's something especially good about a lager at the end, end of a hot day's work as well. Oh, for sure. Yeah, it's there's it's easy drinking. You don't have to think about it. And like Imperial Porter, barrel aged beers, they all have their time and place. But the lager is a little more versatile. Absolutely. And um, when you're doing sort of tasting flights at the venue and stuff, do you normally have the lager included in that? And is this this sort of where you start? Definitely, either a lager or a lighter pale ale, but depending, I guess, what the flavor profiles you're going for, but. Yeah, definitely start with the lighter flavors and move to the more interesting and difficult ones, I guess. But, yeah. You mentioned there that you're getting some of your, your hops from New Zealand. Is that, um, or at least New Zealand styles of hops, you know, sort of how far and wide do you go to, to get your hops in? Uh, you name it. <laughs> we we buy lots of uh, Australian hops, lots of Galaxy, lots of Big Secret, um, Ella, um, your New Zealand hops. Uh, we use some South African hops, obviously European hops and North American hops. So pretty much, you if we you can grow a hop there, we've probably used it. <laughs> and, and in terms of Canada itself, again, we were sort of asking the boys the other day. You know, how much sort of locally sourced hops can you get from Canada, or is it more from sort of the US and stuff that your North American hops are coming from? Uh, I mean, the vast majority are from the U. Pacific Northwest in the US, but there are quite a few small growers in our region, but the climate isn't 
perfect for it. We live in the kind of the Northeast and it's very humid. So there's, it's, they deal with a lot of those like pests and growing uh, and uh, other issues that humidity has with hops. So it's definitely not the perfect climate. They, they grow anywhere, hops will grow anywhere, but um, it's not the most ideal place to grow hops, but there's quite a few farms, uh, Michigan, has quite a few farms as well. So um, the hop, they're different. It's funny, you can grow a hop like a Chinook or a Centennial that people are used to from like Washington State or Oregon and you grow it here and it's quite different and it can be quite good. Um, the Chinook in Ontario is very pineapple-y which is totally different than Chinook typically. Um, but again, it's hard on the farmers to grow a consistent crop because the growing conditions are, aren't the greatest. And are there any particularly sort of Canadian only hops or is it mostly sort of star, uh, I guess hop varieties that we'd be familiar with here? I mean, the vast majority are the same. They did, one of the growers did come out with a branded uh, hop called Sasquatch. Um, I don't know if it's been super successful, but they have released a Canadian origin hop. Yeah, right. I think out of British Columbia, so it's not too far different than the, the Washington growing region, but uh, it's a little colder, so it's not quite as ideal, but um, they do exist. Uh, but I don't know if we have quite the same funding that the big US growers have, so it's it's still pretty in, uh, in its infancy, I would say. Um, it's always sort of fascinating to sort of hear those variations, even in the same hop grown in different places, or even, you know, we've spoken to some brewers who go out to the farms and almost pick row by row which hops they want to use. Nah. Is, is it a challenge when you order a, a hop, particularly from overseas, you know, you think you know what you're getting, but something else turns up in the bag? It's been a challenge. I'd say it's gotten a lot better. I think a lot of the companies, especially the ones in like in Australia, for instance, I know they've done a lot of work uh, to improve their quality and consistency. Uh, but even, even in North America, the consistency has gotten better and better year over year. Um, luckily, we're a larger brewery, so we can get selection on a lot of our varieties. So that is important for us because you want that consistency. Um, so generally, obviously, if you become a larger company, the capability of doing selection becomes available. So that is something we like to take advantage of just to help our consistency. Absolutely. So are you the one that sort of goes and does those things or have you got underlings that you uh, you send out into the fields to do that kind of stuff? Uh, typically, I've done a lot of it uh, with COVID uh, because we haven't been able to travel as much. We've been getting a lot sent to us. Uh, so a lot of the hop companies have been really good at setting up direct shipments of the of the samples and we've been doing a lot of the sampling in-house which is great because we can get more of our staff involved. Uh, normally it would be me, my, there are a couple other people whereas we can get the whole brew team involved this way so it's kind of nice to do it that way. So we can have a bunch of everyone and it's good practice for them uh, because rubbing a hop out of the out of it's totally different than getting uh than just getting a pellet um the, the quality is quite different so it's it is kind of its own little unique skill to be honest 
Yeah, absolutely. And um, so, so when you're sort of thinking about hopping your lagers like this one, is it is it a bit of a challenge to sort of get people to accept, you know, that little bit of extra hoppiness into a lager or is that exactly what people are wanting when they when they have a lager these days, a modern lager, I guess? I mean, for this one, I don't know. I mean, because of the, the style itself isn't really traditional. So, I mean, you think you can kind of direct people almost any way you want. Um, so I think having that like citrusy side of it with the the Motueka and the Waidi is is okay. Like you wouldn't necessarily want that in a lot of lagers just because fruity and lagers are kind of, don't always go hand in hand. Um, so you, would, you wouldn't want that in your German pills there, but so I think it just depends what you're making. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but yeah, but I mean, if you're doing, obviously if you're doing a check, Check Pilsner, you're going to want a lot of lot of hop character there. So, if I think you just have to tell the story, and if you're making it properly, people, like people can usually eventually they can tell what a good made beer is. I think. And um, so, when you're sort of thinking about lagers, are there lagers that you take inspiration from in those more traditional styles, or even for a beer style like this, or is this sort of completely out of inside your head? Um, I mean, this one being a rice lager, there's not a lot of, like, there is the standard, I guess, Japanese versions, but they're obviously a little different than this. Uh, but when we're doing our more classic styles, then they're like, obviously, we're taking inspirations from the, the classic German or Czech versions and kind of doing them like, and then obviously, when a lot of lager is depending on like your equipment and like your water and, those things come into a lot more into play. So you have to like take into account, I guess, what, what you have to work with. <laughs> and then you realize, okay, our water profile is going to probably make it going to taste like this. What do you want to do? So you, you kind of, it depends what you're making, kind of leads you in the direction you kind of go down. You're talking there about the water profile. I mean, it's a, you know, one of those questions that we, we sort of love to hear. We often talk about hops. We often talk about the malts and even the yeast, but, the, the water is definitely one of those things that the uh, the people who are really into their home brewing go to a lot of effort for. What kind of water do you have and, and what do you do in, in treating the water before you use it, if anything? Yeah, so both Hamilton and Toronto are based off of Lake Ontario, so one of the, one of the big Great Lakes. Um, luckily, it's pretty good from a minerality standpoint. It's not, it's not super soft but it does have some minerality but it's not super hard so you can make some good lagers with it it doesn't it's not too hard that like making a good lager is really hard um but it does have a bit of minerality so it makes good ipas um and but you can obviously build your water to whatever style you kind of want but at least it's soft enough that making a good lager isn't impossible so, well, it's, it's really clearly classy and possible. It's clearly very, very possible because that's what we've got in our, in our glass right now. So, yeah, yeah. So, luckily for that, we're, our water is pretty flexible, so we're pretty lucky there. Now, we're not too far away from sort of moving on to the goza or ghost. Which, which, what do you like to cook, to call it? You call it a goza or a ghost? Uh, a goza, typically, <laughs> but I'm what well, I'm not a. 
I, I don't know enough German to be 100% sure to know exactly what the proper way is. No, that's all good. We, uh, those of us who are in the colonies, we, we get to invent our own terminology, but just making sure that you or I are on the same page for, for, starting, yeah. for starting out on that one. Yeah, cool. Yeah, so I, yeah, I don't know. It might be Gosa. It might be Goose. Goose, Goose throws me off. I always like people like say Goose because of Goose. I think so. I always just lean towards calling it Gosa, so you don't confuse it with Giz. That, that's my personal reasoning. I don't know if that matters. No, no, no. We'll, we'll absolutely go with uh, your version of it. So, so let's let's open up that can, and we can start to have a little sip on on that one. And perhaps again, you can take us on a little tasting tour. You know, right from how it appears in the glass uh, and then onwards from there because with some of these, the appearances, you know, it sets the scene for what we're going to taste once we are, we get beer into our mouths. Yeah, this one, um, this is one of our core range uh, fruited sours. Um, so it's been around for quite a few years. Um, we, like, it's pretty much straightforward. It's a guava gosa. <laughs> um, so it has that base Gosa, kettle sour with, uh, we use pink Himalayan sea salt and coriander. Uh, and then we just use a, a healthy amount of, of guava. Um, typically the guava has a, a pink character. Sometimes it can, the pink, depending on the time of year and the lots we get in, the color can lean to a little more yellowy than like deep pink. But generally, a lot of the times it's a very deep pink. This batch that I have right now looks a little more yellow, but uh, we do, we do, one of the things we've done throughout the years is we're very particular of where we get our guava from. And we have this area in Brazil that we found that we, that one of our suppliers always gets. And we're like, that's the guava that we really like. So we're, we're quite particular and we've done a lot of trials on what guava that we really want. So. Yeah. Um, I, I presume there's um, not a lot of Canadian guava forests uh, for local sourcing of guava either. Maybe, uh, maybe on the west coast. I don't know any <laughs> locally. Does. No, definitely not. Um, not one of our fruits. But, yeah, can you talk us uh, through that that process of that initial sort of souring, and um, again for sort of home brewers, different people, you know, obviously make their sours in different ways. What does that process look like for you guys? Yeah, we just use the lactobacillus strain. Um, so it's, we've, we've, I mean, like we have a, we do a lot of kettle sours. It's like a pretty big part of our business. So we've dedicated a lot of equipment to doing it as like consistently and efficiently as possible. So we actually have a dedicated souring tank that lives outside of our brew house. So we'll brew the beer to the point of boiling, send it over to our souring, do our, do our souring in a separate vessel, which is totally temperature controlled. Once we hit the level of acidity that we want, we're constantly checking that. So we can, and we have, we, we brew 24 hours a day at our main facility. So we have people there all day long checking the acidity, right? When it hits the point that we like it, we heat it up to inactivate the lactobacillus, send it back over to the brew house to finish the brewing process and send it into the fermenter. Um, so, now I might've, somewhat misunderstood there, but are you, are you saying that the, that you actually have an outside uh, fermenter or tank for the sour or just is it just a different building outside of the, the main building? No, no, sorry. 
it's a vessel that's not in the brew house, it's inside. <laughs> um, but it has its own dedicated heating system. Um, so we can we can control everything. We can boil in there if you really need to, but um, so it's, we like to just dial it that way. What I find with a lot of kettle sours is the acidity can be vastly different because like people, if people can't be there all day long, the acidity can just can take off and go really high sometimes. So one of the good things that we have is the capability of someone's always monitoring it. So we don't let it go too sour. So that's been like one of the biggest quality consistency improvements that we've had since we did the investment to buy that equipment was to really dial in our acidities on our kettle sours and make sure that they're consistent. And, uh, and I think it's really been a big improvement just for overall <laughs> customer satisfaction, I think, because I know drinking kettle sours that if I don't know them, they can be a different experience sometimes. So I think having, I feel like we can give a, at least a consistent experience to people that that's really important. You, you touched there on the fact that you've got people in the, in the facility 24 hours a day. I mean, that gives us a bit of an idea, I guess, about just sort of how big the production you must have there is now. How many employees yeah. do you have and, and how much beer are you actually getting out the door every year? Uh, we are employees is actually harder because of all the front of house people, I think, including all of our front of house staff, we're about 150, I think. Yeah, right. Uh, production, production, we're probably sitting 40 to 50, um, depending. Um, last year, our beer production would have been in the neighborhood of about 50,000 hectoliters, I think. Um, yeah, right. So we... We're, we're fairly large. Um, like there's, we're not the biggest craft brewery in our region, but we're definitely not the smallest either. So, and we do, obviously you're drinking our beer. We, we, we probably export more than maybe more than any other Canadian craft brewery right now. So yeah, that would be sort of the impression that. that I'd have. Like we see a lot of your beer yeah. over in Australia now. Yeah. So we, like part of that too, was our connection with, the Mr. West guys, um, one of our, Dan Johnston, he used to, he's moved over to a cannabis company recently, but he was really good friends with them. So he got us kind of in into the, the Australian beer scene early. So I think that <laughs> is part of the reason why you guys have noticed, noticed our, uh, our brand probably a little more than uh, we've been around a little longer, I guess. <laughs> So, and, and that's a really good reminder to me that I should give a, a shout out to the team from Mr. West who did uh, a huge amount of work to to hook us up with uh, some of these beers, even even to the extent of pulling some of their beers off out of their own fridges so that we could share it with people like the porter that we'll have later on. So uh, always like to shout out and acknowledge where distributors go that extra mile because uh, it's so important to, um, to people who want to experience pretty amazing beers like these ones. Yeah, no, they've been they've been super awesome to work with and good friends of ours. So, um, and I think am I right in saying you even did a collaboration beer with them at some stage along the line as well? Yeah, we've done a couple of collaborations. Now that I'm thinking of it, I think so. We did a we did a, a Milo inspired uh, stout. I guess it was I think it was the stout. Um, so we used the a hell of a lot of Milo in a beer one time. And that was, that was interesting. Uh, and then I think we did a Paloma beer with them. I'm trying to think if we've done a third beer. 
Definitely awesome. just those two. Was it was, it was definitely the Milo one was the one that I was that was springing to mind for me. And I you know, I've got to ask, is that like a, a tall flavors that you're used to? And when the Milo arrived, what was the reaction of the of the brew staff to um trying to make a beer with a flavor like that coming through it? Uh, I mean, we thought, we do a lot of weird things, so I don't think it's totally <laughs> <laughs> they totally would be thrown off by it, but. It was definitely a challenge to get as much Milo. I think we cleaned out a bunch of Costco's, every Costco around us. We took all of their bulk amounts of, of Milo that we could find. So, uh, although I do notice it on the shelves more more these days. So I think maybe it's becoming more popular in Canada. I don't know. We're happy to trade Milo for poutine. Like, you know, we're pretty open-minded on that. Uh, I, think we, I think we come out of that deal pretty well. Yeah. No, for sure. Well, it's a bit of a different, <laughs> totally different. I might like. I might go for the Milo to be honest. <laughs> we, um, you, you were mentioning there, and we've got a few other of the goes in the in our tasting pack. Um, so, can you tell us a little bit about why the why the brewery does so many of that style of beer? And was it was it always the intention that that would be a style that you you'd put a fair bit of emphasis on? Um, not really. I mean, we do a lot of different fruited sours. So I think ghosts are just nice or good, interesting one to come back to because the the salt obviously gives it a really interesting depth of character and it can really match certain fruits really nicely. So it's, and it's not over, like if you do it nicely, I think it's not overbearing. So it gives like a really cool way to do a different style of sour beer. Um, <laughs> after a while, it's kind of hard to <laughs> come up with new ideas when you like, there's only so many different fruits and so many different sour beers. So it's it, doing a gosa gives you a good angle on certain beers that like, hey, we can do this fruit, but do it as a gosa. So it kind of, oh, it's totally different. Yeah. So definitely nice to do that. I've got to say, look, you know, the guava is, I absolutely get the guava flavor. I'm not getting a huge amount of the coriander. What, how should that be representing itself in the beer? Or is it really just sort of adding another level of complexity without just you know being really distinct it, it's hard in these fruited versions if you have a base if you just have a normal gosa with non-fruited the coriander shines through a lot more um you can if you had a batch of it side by side we didn't have coriander there you'd be like okay i get this low level of a almost like sensation the, the flavor is so low uh because the fruit is just so much more in your face um so it's just like more of like a really background note that's hard to almost describe. If you have a base gosa with nothing else in it, just a kettle sour with the sea salt and the coriander, the coriander really stands out uh, a lot more presently there. But it's hard when you do the fruited versions. It's kind of, it does get lost a little bit. Yeah, not in a bad way because we know from you know, years of sort of talking about these kinds of beers that really that sort of base uh, has that complexity that is sometimes difficult yeah. to sort of pull individual strands of flavors out. Yeah, it's that je ne sais quoi of, uh, of the, the beer, right? Yeah, exactly right. As our friends from Quebec would no doubt, yeah, that would be exactly yeah. what they'd say about it. Exactly. <laughs> you were talking there about sort of the challenges of coming up with new beers and new flavors. How much is that something that, as a brewery, you're conscious of trying to do new things all the time? Because we often talk about, you know, how important is a core range versus how important is that limited release 
to, to keeping the, the till ticking over. Yeah, no, it's something we talk about all the time is like, what's the right amount of new interesting releases versus focusing on the core range and to the, you don't want to cannibalize your, your own self by just adding difficulty and complexity, but you do need to offer new things because that's what customers want. They want to have all these new interesting things. So it's, it is an interesting challenge for us. Luckily, as part of the one of the reasons we did want to, like we've been looking for a small brew pub in Toronto for years, actually. Um, so that's one of the reasons we wanted to have that was to be able to do smaller, interesting, maybe more like kind of niche ideas for these, like a kettle sour, where you wouldn't maybe necessarily want to do a bigger version of it right away. Uh, so that's all. It was one of our one of the driving. Uh, kind of driving reasons for us to, to have a little brew pub. Uh, and we've been able to do trial brews of like kind of more unique kettle sours there where before we scale it up to the larger scale. So um, yeah, so it's, it is, we always want to add new flavors and interesting flavors to the customers, but it's definitely after doing it for years and years and the craft world, craft beer world exploding. There's, there's been so many different beers. It's hard to come up with something new. That's for sure. Does the let's talk about some of the other things that the brewery, or I guess I should say that the organisation overall is doing, and how you get all of those balances right. But you were saying you've you've moved into spirits first of all. How does how does that work, and how much do the do the whole team play in that space? Yeah, so we, we started doing, I don't even know. So exactly when we started doing spirits, so our, um, Matt Howell is our head distiller and cider maker. Matt and I were roommates in university. Um, so we've known each other for 20 years. Uh, he went to Harriet Watt for brewing and distilling. I stayed and did my brewing in Canada. When he moved back home, we kind of eventually got back together and we ended up working at coming over to Collective Arts. So uh, he's the he's the main inspiration behind the spirits. Um, but we we started with gins, uh, gins being like the easiest way to be creative and make a product that comes out fairly quickly, as opposed to a, like a barrel aged product, obviously. Um, so we started off doing a few different gins. Uh, we have a core range of three gins. We've done a, a few seasonals. Uh, we released a um, our first rum last year. We did a yeah, right. We we procured some four year old Venezuelan rum, and then we finished it in. Um, we we do some bourbon barrel aged maple syrup, non alcoholic. So we age maple syrup in bourbon barrels. We take the maple syrup out, and then we put the rum inside the maple syrup barrel. We aged the rum in the maple syrup barrel, and then we took the rum out and bottled it and sold the rum that way. So we did, we released a version of a rum last year like that. So and we're coming out with more uh, later this year. So so we like to play around with those things where yeah, rum us distilling rum doesn't make a lot of sense in Canada uh, where yeah. we are, but but we could still do a cool rum by finding a finding someone who's making a nice rum and using it we can kind of put our own twist on it. So we, we like doing that. And like we can, then we take in those, our gins and the rum and turn those into cocktails. So those, so we just kind of come up with our own cocktails. So we made a dark and stormy with the rum 
we've made a bunch of different gin cocktails with the gins. So uh, we like to just we like to take an idea and just keep expanding on it. So and then with spirits, obviously going into cocktails is the next logical step. It, but the next logical step, but by God, you, you start to have a lot of things going on at that stage in the in the organization to keep on top of. Yeah, it's it's definitely a challenge. Like we we like to do a lot of things, and we think, especially this day and age, and maybe I, I haven't been to Australia in a couple of years, but in North America, it's kind of like if you're not thinking like beyond just the okay, we're a craft brewery these days, like you might. <laughs> feel like you might get left behind because in North America, craft brewing is plateaued. Uh, sales haven't really expanded much in the last couple of years. So I think a lot of people are like thinking big picture and we've always kind of thought big picture. So it was, it was always like, Hey, we're, we're creative. We have all these creative people. We're a creative company. We like making creative products. So we've always been this creative, like we love being creative. So, I think we've just kind of locked, I wouldn't call it locked into it, but as craft beer in North America is kind of plateauing, we've, we've already set ourselves into a nice position where at least we have these other products and kind of can keep the company moving forward. If, even if the craft beer side starts to slow down. And obviously you sort of in a similar spirit to that. Tell us a bit about the, the cannabis uh, products that are, that are coming out. What are you doing in that sort of field? Yeah, so we, Canada has legalized cannabis for a few years now. Um, definitely not the, the quickest um, route to market. They, uh, the federal government controls uh, the, the industry. So they, they legalize the flower first, and then a couple of years later, they legalized edibles. But even after that was drink. So it was a very, very slow process. And there's just tons of regulation. So Long story short, after about two and a half years, our products, so we, we had developed these cocktails basically with no alcohol, and then we infused cannabis into them. So we had come up with these beautiful cocktail recipes, and we'd just been waiting for the legalization to pass through. And then one of the rules is alcohol manufacturers can't make the cannabis products. They can't be made in the same facility. So we had You're to find right. a co-pack a co-packer to make the product for us. So uh, we're dealing with co-packers. But uh, last year we started selling our, our cannabis products, our cannabis beverages. And to date, we're the highest selling cannabis beverage beverages in, our, in Ontario. So uh, that's been really successful, although it's still a very limited market the way the government has rules. You're only allowed to buy five cans at once. That's the maximum you're allowed to buy. There's really weird <laughs> limits to how much you're allowed to purchase. But. And we were hearing from town, and this to us in Australia is sort of an odd kind of thing about, you know, the, the government liquor store and so forth. Where do you buy the yeah. – is there a government cannabis store as well? There's a, The government cannabis store is all virtual, it's all online. But because the cannabis industry – just legalized in the last few years. They they allowed private stores to start off with. So there's hundreds of private stores as well. Uh, there's you I mean it's a terrible comment, but you can't swing a dead cat without hitting a, a cannabis store around here. Uh, there's there's so many of them. Like 
I don't know how they'll stay in business, but um, every corner it seems like has a cannabis store. Yeah, right. <laughs> and so, could this, I mean, obviously, I wasn't expecting to have a conversation about cannabis drinks today, but it's uh, it's something quite yeah. unique to us. So, in terms of the flavors of the drinks that you're making there, are they sort of normal cocktails that we'd recognize that you're then just infusing with the cannabis oils or sort of what, um, what, what would we be tasting if we turned up to one of those? We went a little more uh, tiki style um, just to keep the sugar level a little higher because there is a bit of a bitterness component to cannabis oil. So just to make sure that the flavors worked. So we went a little more tiki style in our initial um, beverages. Uh, but we do have concepts that are a little more, uh, a little more, less less sweet. Well, like so, we we have kind of moved in that direction. We have tea based ones too that aren't really cocktails. They're more of like a, a tea infusion with other fruits, just sort of like a iced tea almost. Um, so we just wanted to like be very playful because some of the cannabis like cannabis products can kind of. They either go people towards like the super stoner or the I'm going to have wellness or go to sleep. We wanted ours to be kind of that, hey, this is enjoyable, have fun. Um, so it's kind of, <laughs> we're trying to hit that middle ground, um, which is really interesting because we're not allowed to advertise on the on the products and cannabis. So they we can't do the beautiful art and the cannabis packaging. It's like, just full of government warnings and so it, it doesn't look pretty really so we have to we have to do our pretty on the on the flavor not the packaging as much and does the cannabis itself lend any of the flavor or is that really just sort of part of what's uh, uh, you you can there's different types of emulsions and infusions you can do um we for the products we were making we weren't really trying to get like we weren't really trying to get the cannabis flavor, but if you really want, you can get a more heavy cannabis flavor emulsion. And is there ever sort of any sort of crossover with the beer there? Because obviously, you know, we're familiar with the concept that, you know, the cannabis and hops and so forth are, are pretty closely related botanically. Um, yeah, there's people doing, like there is one company doing a Dialk beer, but not very good, but... Um, <laughs> There is obviously, and then there's people who do terpene extractions, which are the same flavor and aroma components that are in cannabis and hops. So there are people that are focusing on terpenes. Those must be those actually more on like the smoking side generally. Um, but there hasn't been too much of a like it's just hard, it's really hard to make beer like non-alcoholic beer is like a very hard thing to do. So doing that while making a cannabis infused beverage is asking a lot. Like I, I wouldn't want to do that. That's why we stuck to the cocktails and they're a lot more easier to make and the flavors are like just the more broad appeal for sure. So. And, and so when you're sitting down and sort of having a, a production meeting or a meeting of what the week's going to look like, are you covering off on, on all of these different things? Uh, we try to separate, especially the cannabis, like we try to separate that out um, just because it's so different. Uh, and we don't produce it at our facility, so it's it kind of lives on its own a bit. Um, the spirits, it does, um, especially the, a lot of the cocktails, they're 
they go through the same production planning as our beer. So, um, so they kind of all get to put in. We have our own blending tanks for doing mixing in the cannabis beverage, or not cannabis, sorry, the cocktails. Um, so we have our own our own kind of uh, systems in, uh, in, uh, in tanks for doing that. So when we do our weekly planning, it's all part of the plan. And um, so how many sort of, we don't really have many packaged cocktails in Australia, but I presume that's what you're doing with, with those ones. What sort of things are you doing on that front? Yeah, we do like a lot of gin ones so far. So a lot of um, almost like a Collins, um, a bunch of different, bunch of just different like we want the we want the gin to at least come through. We don't we're not trying to hide the the, the spirit. So we're trying to come up with flavors that match the the different uh, gins. Uh, so we did uh, we have a rhubarb and hibiscus gin. So we have a rhubarb and hibiscus uh, cocktail that just kind of amplifies those flavors. We've done a uh, a pink grapefruit one with that rhubarb and hibiscus gin. Um, I'm trying to think of them all. We did a, a gimlet with one of our gins, so we've we kind of just like to play in the different the different cocktails, and we have a bunch more that we're hopefully gonna. There's future plans for more. <laughs> um, we just kind of it's still in its infancy here too in Canada. Uh, that government uh, monopoly that Jeff was mentioning. Um, they're they're pretty new to it as well. So right now it's all lumped together with uh, seltzers. So it's kind of. Uh, like, wait, I was wondering. I, was, I knew we'd get to that word eventually. Yeah. So it's but it's hard though because they when the government looks at the sales and you're competing against White Claw, it's like well it's not the same product. I know you're competing like like this is a high end well high end cocktail against White Claw seltzers. Like they're not they're not the same thing. So um eventually we think they're gonna treat them differently so it's it's still in its infancy here so we're kind of feeling a little bit like trailblazers too with those uh, in the u.s there's definitely uh, quite a few more of them so and it's it seems like it's a pretty decent like a pretty big trend right now so we feel lucky that we're ahead of the game hopefully on that a bit <laughs> Well, that seems like an excellent spot to have a little break from the live part of the recording uh, and an excellent opportunity for me, the David who is editing the podcast, just to remind you all to go to our Facebook page, check out the events. Uh, we've got all sorts of things that are coming up in the next month or so, some great online events with new friends from Black Arts, from Prancing Pony and from Noodledoof. Uh, we also have Colonial coming up uh, in August and uh, a fun visit out to our very good friends from Co-Conspirators for a live event at the end of the month. Uh, so if you're in Melbourne, come and join us for those. Uh, and make sure you're following us on the Instagram and on the Facebook just so you don't miss out on any of those events. Okay, hopefully you've got the beers and hopefully you're enjoying the beers. If not, jump onto the Shopify. And now let's go back to the interview with Collective Arts. Well, here we are. We're Back with Ryan, we've got the IPA number 20 uh, in our hands, which is Citra Four Ways. So, again, can you take us on a little tour of this beer and, you know, with the Citra on the can there, I guess we can anticipate what we're going to be uh, experiencing, but talk us through some of those flavours a little bit, if you will. Yeah, I mean, um, so it's pretty obvious, Citra. Uh, I think I'm guessing most people on this 
<laughs> and this and this thing again, no citra because it's obviously one of the most famous hops out there. Um, but the really cool thing was all the new using all the new um, extracts that are available, uh, primarily incognito and spectrum. So it was really cool to see the depth that because what I find when you do a lot of single hop beers, the beer itself, it, it actually doesn't have enough depth because it just kind of comes across one note. But the cool thing was when you did the, this four ways, the other versions of the Citra gave it a lot more depth of character. Usually that's why I like pairing hops because that's what gives like a nice depth to the beer. But it, when you did it with these, you didn't, we didn't need to because the different versions of the Citra just work in harmony together as opposed to just kind of being the same note. Um, so it's, I mean, it has a lot of those classic citric characteristics, um, citrus, tropical fruits. Um, it's actually held up pretty well for the age of it too, um, which I don't know if that is just like a really good canning run, or I think that maybe those extracts maybe aren't as susceptible to oxidation as typical hops. So we are, like we're still in our early days of using this, especially the spectrum of the incognito. So I am quite, I am quite pleased with how well this beer is aged. And I'm, and I'm kind of going to say, Hey, those extracts are probably helping play a part. So not only are they giving really cool depth and flavors to the beer they're they might be helping extend uh, the shelf life a little bit too. Can tell us, you know, what are the four ways? What are the, the four elements of Citra that we're, that we're getting here? Yeah, so we're using classic Citra uh, T90 pellets, uh, Citra Cryo, uh, so, which has been out for a few years now. So that's the, uh, the pelletized hop with a lot of the vegetable matter removed. Uh, Citra Incognito, uh, which is a, a type of extraction. Uh, when we use the Incognito, we put it uh, at the end of the end of the whirlpool, directly into the fermenter, so we didn't actually use any. There was no hops in the kettle or the whirlpool. We just added the incognito right into the fermenter as we cooled out onto it. So it's kind of a no boil, no whirlpool hop hop beer. Uh, then the, then we just dry hopped with all the citra, the citra cryo, and the citra spectrum is another type of extract, which is primarily meant to be used as a dry hop replacement, so on the cold side. Uh, so I, after the beer had fermented out, we added a sort of, what we ballpark as maybe a quarter of a typical, of the amount of dry hop we use for the, with the spectrum. Um, so yeah, those spectrum and cognitos are just really new extracts of citra. Uh, I don't know the chemical process difference behind the two. I'd have to geek out a little more myself on those, and I don't know how much they're exactly telling either. Uh, they might be, they're still still pretty new. So, um, but I've been really impressed uh, with what I've seen so far. So they're definitely pretty cool to work with, and I'm excited to keep using them. Tell us a bit about your sort of your continuum of pale ales. We we know you know about New England styles, but you know how much do you have that sort of basic pale ale? How much do you do IPAs? And how much do you sort of move into some of these styles? Um, and I don't know if this. I mean, I know Australia has been you have your classic pale ale, 
Um, but we're seeing kind of a little bit of a renaissance of pale ales lately, locally. Um, for a couple of years there, it was kind of like a dirty word and <laughs> you would no one would want to buy it if it was a pale ale, but lower ABV seems to be making a comeback of late. Um, so we are, we are starting to do a little more pale ales and kind of that lower, lower ABV hoppy beer uh, of late. I mean, IPAs were obviously still our biggest selling products. I think that's the same for everyone. So we do both New England style and classic West Coast style. Um, our, I mean, we started off doing the West Coast style. I think that's what people recognize us for in our early days. So it's been great to have these newer versions of IPAs to give customers and help also be like creative and offer new offerings. And, um, but yeah, we run the gamut all the way up to your double IPAs. We do both a West Coast and a New England style. Uh, and then one-off beers, obviously. So we we offer, I mean, you name it, we probably have it. <laughs> so we and kind of run the gamut, but yeah. yeah. For you personally, is there sort of a particular style when it comes to pale ales and hoppy beers that you particularly enjoy? I mean, I do... I do gravitate to the lower ABV, just again, that sessionability that I think is like drinking lagers. It's just the pale ale offers that as long as it's a nice full flavored, nice rounded body pale ale that I think is really, really enjoyable and thirst quenching and you can have, I like, I like beer, but I like, I'm drinking beer. I don't mind having a few and I don't, but I also don't want to get totally loaded. So I, I, I do really enjoy that pale ale for that reason. So, um, yeah. Yeah. I, I can never tell whether, um, it's the fact that I'm older now and enjoy drinking those lighter alcohol ones with my friends or whether that's a, a more general trend. I can't tell whether it's just me and the people I drink with or whether it's a, a broader trend than that. I, I mean, I think there's definitely sales evidence right now pointing to the to a trend. Um, but I mean, it's, it's market to market. I think you go somewhere else in the world, it might not be. So. Um, but I do find that, I don't know if it's just a Commonwealth thing, but Australia and England and <laughs> the US and Canada, the trends are pretty, pretty similar usually. It might be on my mind because we were talking to Sierra Nevada yesterday, but they're saying, and we're seeing a little bit over here as well, that sort of rise of West Coast American pale ales again, sort of a bit of a drop yeah. off of the, the New England IPAs, perhaps. Yeah, same thing. Um, the West Coast have definitely been steady for us. Like we, we, they never went away for us, so they're they were always one of our our, our big offerings. So, um, but yeah, I think definitely a little resurgence in the classics, West Coast and West Coast pales. Definitely happening. Uh, it's sort of, as you say, sort of fascinating to see which of those sort of things seems to translate across those, you know, different countries and and what we're yeah. seeing. You know, I, I do find like the West Coast pale, or the West Coast style, is definitely changed. It's not that, or it's not those version one and two And I've always brewed mine differently. Mine have always been a little more of a hybrid of of a New England almost, whereas you do a lot of late hopping and dry hopping, whereas you're not going as heavy during hopping. So I, I still think you're seeing the crossover 
Whereas, yeah, the beer is going to come out crisper and clearer, but the hopping is still a little bit more New England-y or New Age, I would say. So um, definitely, I think that definitely you take your learnings and your of one style and you you always see, see how you can improve in other stuff. Uh, absolutely. Um, just we find those sorts of things fascinating. Are you finding sort of new hops to use? Obviously, Citra is, you know, one of the biggies, one of the very well-known ones, but when you're making those other ones that you're enjoying, what sort of hops are you using for those? Yeah, I know we're out. I mean, every brewer is always looking for a new hot thing. Um, trying to think, um, to try the Nectaron, um, the new um, New Zealand hop was quite nice. Uh, and then Eclipse, uh, which is Australian, right? If I'm not crazy. <laughs> um, so we've been, yeah, like uh, those have been two really new, interesting hops for us. Uh, so a couple of interesting new, um, new uh, sorry, South African hops that we got our hands on, just really small batches. So I don't have a, we don't have a ton of feedback yet, but yeah, we're always looking for new varietals and new, and now new extracts that could potentially be kind of game changers. And especially the extracts, if they both help longevity and shelf life and your, your yields are going to improve. So that's going to help brewers immensely. If those, if those really do help those things. Absolutely. Um, I feel like we've buried the lead a little bit here because we've we've got this far into things before we've started to talk about the can art and the presentation of the beers uh, in the packaging, which is obviously both amazing to look at uh, and a real feature um, of the brewery. But I thought we'd sort of leave it so that we did have a few of these different cans in front of us to talk yeah. about. But can you tell us a little bit about the, the brewery's ethos, you know, and that real... Yeah. Collect, what collective arts really means, I guess. Yeah, and I'm. I apologize too. I'm. I'm because I'm a brewer at heart, and the art side is. <laughs> I, I forget sometimes to to really focus on it. So the the brewery was founded to kind of fuse those creative worlds of craft brewing and craft beverages now with the creative community and emerging artists. Like that was Bob and Matt's like like uh, defining ethos of the company was fusing these worlds together, making beautiful packaging and products both inside and out. So um, when we first started, we were one of the only breweries doing cool art on the can. Um, but now it's quite common. Like most breweries have upped their game on their packaging. So it's, we don't, like it's great. Like it's, like it's great to see breweries succeed and do things. Uh, so we don't stand out quite as much anymore. Like there's a lot of breweries doing a lot of cool things on their packaging. So, um, but we, we're always trying to improve uh, and make sure that our products are still looking uh, quite well. We've done a bit of a rebrand, although these cans don't, a little bit of a, not a rebrand, but the, where our nameplate is on the cans are changing. So we're always trying to, revamp our, our look a little bit, but stay true to ourselves and really make the art the focus of the product. So we just started to quickly talk about the art. So we yeah, please. we do we do um, a few times a year we do calls for art from artists around the world. Uh, we've had 
over 20,000 different art submissions from over about 50 countries now where artists send us their art through an online portal. Uh, it gets kind of weeded out for anything that might be racist or insensitive. Um, <laughs> and then it goes to a panel of judges, not that aren't from the company. Uh, they're either beer, beer writers, art, artists, musicians, and they do, they select which art they like with the kind of just like a online thing, like a, almost like a Tinder thing, a, a pass fail kind of, yeah. where they, if you like, like it or not. Uh, and then we kind of weed down our art, art submissions that way uh, to we eventually have this curated art for our different series. So I think we're on series 25. Um, so we've, and then we pay the artists for using their piece for the period of time. So uh, we don't own any of the artwork. So we just, we just use and pay the artists uh, for, the, for the period of time it's on the can. Uh, and, and tell us a bit about those sort of series. You say you're up to 25. What what does that sort of look like? <laughs> uh, chaos, usually. Um, <laughs> behind the scenes, chaos. It's a lot of, because we're trying to get all of the, because there's efficiencies of when we go send it to the printers. So you're, it's a lot of making sure the art's like on the package properly. It has all the right information. It it. And you do mock-ups because sometimes it it may look good on a on the, on the computer screen, but sometimes when it goes to print, it doesn't look as good. So there's there's a lot involved in the in coming and making sure that the art looks looks really well on the can. Um, so in because of that, we have a lot more people internally than most breweries would have um, just to deal with a lot of the nuance and complexity of the art business when it comes to the packaging. Uh, but like. Our company is built on that, so we have to be true to our word, I guess, and uh, and kind of deliver. Otherwise, we're not really not really standing up for what we say we are. And so, when you're sort of talking about that sort of ethos and so forth, how do new people into the into the brewery learn about that, and how much of that is something that people really aspire to work with? It's yeah, it's a bit of you have to be. It's a nimble environment. It's 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 a bit chaotic, so um, it's definitely challenging in that sense because of all the different moving parts. So I think it's it's not for everyone, and uh, it can it can be a little it can burn out some people. Uh, so it's a bit of organized chaos sometimes, and like we, I mean, this is every craft brewery, but everyone assumes that like it's just the everything's smooth sailing and the pretty packaging. It must be like. It's, but it's chaos behind the scenes, but that's every brewery. So I'm, I'm not looking for sympathy. It's every brewery is the same. <laughs> uh, well, that's part of the reason why we call the show the cool room is because it's always the cool yeah. room is the thing that breaks down and it's not because we're yeah. all cool people in here. Yeah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> One of the traditional questions that we always ask, you know, on that theme is, you know, what's the strangest or weirdest funniest thing you've seen in a cool room or for that matter you know just that sort of behind the scenes kind of of life in the brewery you know we we love a good explosion story or we love a you know those sort of those sort of things that people don't imagine is uh is part of you know your work, daily work life oh wow um wow i wasn't expecting this question 
<laughs> and, and, and we also always say that you can imagine it's happened at another brewery rather than the one that you know that you you work for particularly uh, if it's something particularly naughty i mean I, there's all the stories of tanks imploding and fun things like that um one of my brewers who again he's known him forever he one time i was up in the office and i just heard this giant loud bang just boom and it's like it sounded like I thought a tanking imploded or exploded or something. Kind of did, I guess. But so what he did by accident or something, he even though there's a giant warning sign, he opened the hatch on the tank of a fermenter while it was still under pressure. He forgot to depressurize it. And it just shot the hatch to like blew it across the brewery, the entire brewery. And it's just the loudest sound ever, I thought. But luckily, he opened it away from his head. Yes. Otherwise, it would have decapitated him. But um, that's probably the scariest thing I've seen at the brewery that I didn't actually see it. I heard it, but <laughs> I saw the aftermath. But, um, uh, I imagine that aftermath took a bit of cleaning up as well. No, because it was just air. Uh, oh, okay. It, it did smash a light fixture above it but nothing got in the tank, luckily. Um, but the air pressure smashed. Uh, the air, it wasn't even a, nothing hit it. It was just air that hit the light thing and blew it to smithereens. Uh, but there's just so much pressure coming out of the tank. Uh, but yeah, one of those, every brewery's got those like scary kind of almost horror stories. Uh, but luckily, we don't happen too often. That's that's excellent to hear, and it's also excellent to hear. You know, we sometimes get stories of you know people sleeping in the cool rooms or things like that. Uh, so we've got nothing nothing along those lines happening at the good people of Collective Arts. Nah, the rooms are too cold; they would freeze to death. <laughs> <laughs> I would have thought on a on a beautiful Canadian, you know, 30, 35 degree day that it might. Well, that was when uh, I was. Yeah, there, I'm sure there are some people in the cool rooms for sure. I know the. You can throw some giant piles of Gatorade or something in there. But <laughs> generally, yeah, you, this time of year is when they break down. So <laughs> you've been really generous with your time, and I'm I'm conscious of the fact that it's well getting starting to head towards midnight uh, over in Canada. But before we finished up, I really did want to give first of all a chance for the audience to type in some questions into uh, into the Zoom chat. So if people who are sort of joining us live today have any questions that they want to ask, um, type those in, guys. Uh, but also just for you to give us a bit of a preview or uh, some of us might even be up to the, the Imperial Porter, which is, I think, out of our the 12 beers we have in the pack, you know, this is the big one. This is the, the really impressive and exciting one. So can you, again, take us on a little bit of a tasting tour of, of what we'll be experiencing with that uh, and a bit of the backstory behind the beer? Yeah, so this one... This one's pretty straightforward um, in a sense. Um, we do, I guess I'll back up a little bit, but our kind of our flagship core multi-beer is a porter. And then we brewed an imperial version of it in the past. And then this is the imperial version of it, bourbon barrel age. Um, so it, it comes out of the barrels at about 11.5% ABV. Uh, but like the base recipe is just kind of a higher octane classic porter recipe. Um, 
bit of a hybrid of a U.S. and a, and a British porter. It's not really either one, I think. Um, so, so can I just, just pause you there for a moment and say, what are those two styles to you? You say it's sort of a, it's a bit of a blend, but for particularly people who, uh, porters are a style that not everyone is experienced in. What are those two styles in your mind? Yeah, so the, like an American porter tends to be on the hoppier side, uh, whereas the English porter is a little more soft and malt forward. Uh, so ours kind of lives in the bit of the middle. It's hoppy, but not nearly as hoppy as a as a traditional like uh, American porter. So, um, but it does have a decent amount of hop backbone to it. Um, that's the, my easiest description. Like it's a it's right in the middle of that kind of that English porter that's a little sweeter uh, and more of like the softer body as opposed to that little sharper American version. So, uh, and then we age it in bourbon barrels. Uh, luckily, we're not too far away from Kentucky. So we have pretty good lines on bourbon barrels. So we've been buying bourbon, I've been buying bourbon barrels for well over a decade. So we're pretty good at selecting those. So we so we, we usually get pretty good high quality bourbon barrels. Uh, we age, this one tends to actually be a blend of one year and two year old age. Uh, we find that the two year old just kind of balances it quite nicely, gives a little more softness, takes a little bit of the edge off the alcohol. So it's, it's nice to have some two year old to blend into it. Um, so it's typically a bit of a blend in one, one and two year old. Uh, but the flavor characteristics are classic kind of bourbon, bourbon barrel age. Uh, stout or porter where you're getting all those big vanillas uh, and barrel character <laughs> and alcohol from the barrel and they're matching those chocolate ear uh, roasty notes from the beer so it's kind of like the it's always a really perfect marriage of those flavors uh, I always find that it's it's a little bit like shooting fish in a barrel when you just do a classic like bourbon barrel age one it's not as interesting because there's Everyone wants new and cool and interesting. There's just this is just straight up bourbon barrel aged imperial porter, but I think I find that they're they're really they're really easy to drink because they don't have any of the crazy stuff going on that a lot of brewers we do nowadays. But so it's, it's a little more easy drinking if, if you want to call it eleven and a half percent beer easy drinking. <laughs> and and in terms of you know for the brewery you know how much is sort of making beers like this, you know, one of the, the benefits of, of having the size and the scale that you do? Yeah, it's totally, definitely a benefit. We do, we really, around the same time as this every year, we do a series of collaborations with breweries from around the world. We call it the Origins of Darkness. Uh, so we release usually about four of those a year. Um, and we collaborate with breweries and we barrel, they're typically barrel aged, bigger ABV, dark. The only stipulation is they have to be dark beers because of the name. So last year we did collaboration with uh, Garage Project uh, from New Zealand, uh, Equilibrium, uh, Invited to Sea from the US, and, uh, and Lervig from uh, Norway. So just to give you an instance of, so we do about four of those every year and we release those in the early. Canadian autumn, so your springtime. Yep. Um, so we uh, 
so it's exciting. So it kind of gives us kind of gives us seasonality to like it's kind of when our, our typical big beer season is slowing down and that's when we can kind of focus on our our barrel aged products. So it gives the brewers something uh, interesting to do in the slower months, do a lot more barrel work and have some fun with that. Uh, just really briefly, you know, how do those collaborations work? Is it just sort of, you know, someone sends an email and that's as detailed as it gets or, you know, how uh, close is the collaboration? Well, through COVID, it was definitely a lot more emails and uh, video calls. Um, typically, we like to get the brewers to come out and brew the collab with us, but with COVID, that wasn't very possible. So um, we're looking forward to getting more of the brewers to come and visiting us hopefully this year. So uh, yeah, usually it's a get on a phone call or now a video call or write some emails, dial in a recipe, dial in some concepts, what barrels you want to get, that sort of thing. Uh, and I imagine that you must have a, a long list uh, of people who are wanting to come and collaborate with you. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, we've done a lot of collaboration, so it's kind of you're always trying to like keep collaborating with new people and it's always trying to like, but yeah, there's, I think, I'd hope to think there's a lot of people who want to collaborate with it, but uh, you never know. <laughs> are, are there any that you're really hanging out to that you haven't quite managed to just organise the right time for yet? Oh, I don't know. It's it's so hard. Um, it's been so weird with COVID that I can't even, <laughs> it's, uh, but there's tons of breweries I'd love to be able to, to get the with, but just haven't really I, I'm sure well there's always going to be new interesting ones and there's always ones you never really think of but uh, we'd like to do we did one with Moondog a few years back so kind of we try to always try to hit different parts of the world not just keep it new like North American focus so we're always interested in like hitting different areas and having different inspirations. Some of them are like terroir and their local terroir uh, influence. So when we did the garage project, they sent over some of their, we used a bunch of their Phantasm um, wine extract and did a bunch of South Pacific ingredients when we did the collaboration with them. So it's always fun to come up with new concepts and kind of novel concepts. So That sort of... Uh... Leads me to what's going to be my last question. Before we have a, a couple of questions from the room, I can see that they're lining up there. But we've spoken about just the huge range of things that Collective Arts does, but both for you personally and for the brewery overall, what are the things you're looking forward to doing in the next few years? That's a good question. Um, if I know what's going to happen in the next few years, that'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> Um, tra traveling, I think that's one of the big ones. Um, I'm going back to Europe. I'm going to Ireland next week. So I'm definitely getting out and traveling more. That's going to be a huge thing I've missed personally. So going to see friends that I haven't seen in a couple of years. Um, and then I think it's going to be interesting that to see how the beer world develops. I think there's a lot of interesting not to get all doom and gloom, but there's a lot of geopolitical <laughs> things happening right now that could really impact the uh, the beer the beer scene and like beer ingredients, especially that could affect that a lot of drinkers obviously wouldn't really think of that, but it might have some downstream impacts of 
prices and ingredient availability that not a lot of people might realize. Uh, I mean, it's not too hard to take a big leap that like Ukraine doesn't sell a lot of wheat. There's going to be a lot of wheat shortages in the world, and that has a like. There's a lot of wheat in beer, and that but that also has an effect on the barley supply because now barley is being used to supplement wheat, and the, the dominoes fall, and then all of a sudden your beer costs two dollars more or something. You know, it's like those things. So with the inflation and all the ingredients issues in the world, I think that's going to be interesting to see what happens in the next few years. Absolutely right. Even just the cost of shipping beer, we're really conscious in Australia. Wow. You know, that yeah. it adds so much to the price of what we pay. No, totally. And as an exporting brewery, it's definitely something we've we've been having to deal with too. So it's all of these challenges, I think, are going to be, realistically, they're going to be the biggest probably impacts on the craft beer world, I'd say, in the next few years. We've got a couple of audience questions to finish off and then, Ryan, we're going to let you get to bed or whatever it is that Canadians do in the middle of the night. Well, we won't. So um, Shana slash Muggs, I'm not sure which of you guys uh, typed that question in, but would you like to unmute? I thought it might have been you, Shana, but far be it from me to to impose on that. Uh, Unmute and ask your question. Uh, Thanks, David. Uh, Ryan, I was just curious. We, we've we had a discussion with Town Brewery recently um, and they have a very similar relationship when it comes to art. In fact, extremely similar. Similar. It was like listening to the same story. Um, and beer. And I was wondering, is this common amongst breweries in Canada or, or is it just that Josh and Caleb go after the, the artier beers? Um, I'm not sure. I, I think... We probably, I don't know if Josh and Caleb, we introduced them or they knew about town anyway. But, uh, I think, as I mentioned earlier, I think a lot of breweries are doing good packaging now. It's pretty common. Not like, Yeah, a lot of Canadian breweries, but I think it's common everywhere. Like you see, there's people know that you need, you can't just get away with a like, crappy old fashioned packaging nowadays. Like, great, you might have the greatest beer in the world inside, but it doesn't look good on the outside, no one's going to grab it, right? So I think a lot of people have put great effort into how their beer presents. And I think, yeah, it's, you see a lot in Canada, but it's it's global in my opinion. I don't think it's just a Canadian thing. Yeah, no, thank you. And Laura, first time, uh, first time caller from sunny Bendigo, my hometown. Um, if you're there, Laura, would you like to unmute and ask your question to, uh, to Ryan? Uh, I'm not Laura, but I'm sitting next to her, so I'll, I'll <laughs> ask a question for her if that's okay. That's that's uh, go right ahead, Laura. <laughs> um, something that we've noticed about collective arts beers over the years is that they're always so well refined uh, on the palate. Everything just seems to um, kind of work perfectly together. Um, I think a lot of brew, or we think a lot of breweries in Australia are getting there. Um, obviously, you guys have got some 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 years um, of experience above where a lot of Australian breweries are. Um, but in terms of selecting uh, what beers go to package, is there any kind of formula that you work on? Do you release it into your brew pub first and gain feedback, or do you you do a couple of additions? Um, how is it that you decide what's going to go to package? Um, in comparison to something that you might say, oh, we'll just keep it for the brew pub and just for the locals? Um, I, I mean, a lot of times 
like when we're doing one-offs, it's kind of just, well, you're going for it and you just use your instincts and your game knowledge, kind of like being a chef and you just kind of use your, use your experience and you hopefully you make the right decisions. Um, but yeah, like I said, we'd not have the brew pub. We can do, especially when you're doing like weird fruited flavors, like stuff that isn't like kind of typical brewery stuff. Yeah, you can use the smaller brewery to play around and kind of dial in some dosage rates and things like that for different ingredients. Um, when we do package our beers, we have the capability, like we do have internal standards of people check the beer. And if it's one of our core range beers where we might have a, like a different tank of it or something available. And if we're, if we're not sure that like say that, that batch like meets our quality standards, we won't like, we try to hold it. And then we like, we'll do it and like have more people try it. And then we decide, okay, maybe we can blend it into something else, like a different batch of it to improve the quality. Or, I mean, if it's for whatever reason, if the beer is really not good, then we'll, we won't package it. But um, we just try to set a lot of internal checks and balances kind of to catch anything to try to keep the consistency to uh, kind of a, the highest point we can while trying to keeping the operation going. You obviously don't want to grind everything to a halt every time, but um, so it's, yeah, it's just a, a lot of internal practices we've put in place over the years that try to kind of catch any problems before we put it into a package. Cause once it's in the can, it's in the can and it's too late. Um, so we, uh, yeah, that's, we, we just try to put a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of practices in place to, reduce issues of packaged beer where we're, we're unhappy with. Do you actually have a, a test system, like a small batch sort of system that you can do little runs on, or is that um, sort of something that's we, in the past a bit now for you guys? Yeah, we never had one. We would just do our, our 60 hectoliter batches. <laughs> that would be our test batch. So we do have our little brew pub now where we can test. But it's a different system, a different brewery, different city. So as any brewer will, will say like every brew house is different. So you like, just cause you make it in one place doesn't mean it will be exactly the same on the, on the bigger system. So you always kind of have to take that into account as well. So, um, and we don't have the same equipment there. We have a centrifuge on the big system where we don't have one on the little system. So there's just things that the process is going to be a little different too. So you know that the beer will come out a bit differently at the, the larger brewery. So you just kind of use all those knowledge base when you make a beer on the small system, be like, okay, it's probably going to come out different, but it'll probably be kind of like this when you make it on the big system. So just gained experience mostly and putting those checks and balances in place. I'm, uh, I'm not going to let Crofty unmute and ask his question because he's asking if he can come to Canada and sleep on your, on your couch. And that's just that's just too much of an imposition. Uh, I feel like we've already imposed enough on your uh, Saturday night. But um, Ryan, we're really grateful for the uh, for your time tonight. We're going to sit around and drink our way through the other ten or eight or nine beers in our, in the pack this afternoon, or at least some of us will. And um, we really look forward to catching up again. What are your socials? Is probably what we should finish off on. Um, so collective arts, uh, brewing for most things, I think is, uh, pretty much all of our socials, uh, uh and then, uh, collective arts brewing.com, collective arts.com as well. Uh, and, 
if you need my personal ones, then if you'd like to share it, but more the brewery. No, uh, yeah, Collect the Birds Brewing should show up on most things. So uh, follow us and all those fun things. And uh, yeah, we'd love to, if anyone's coming to Canada, drop us a line ahead of time. Uh, more than happy to show you a good time. Uh, and then I also, I hope to make it over back to Australia sometime soon and maybe be able to bump into a few of you, uh, a location or maybe Mr. West. <laughs> Mr. West sounds like an excellent location to do something like that. Uh, thank you so much, Ryan. Thank you to everyone who's joined us in the room today. And um, we really look forward to having another fun episode coming out soon. Enjoy the rest of the beers. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Ryan. Cheers.